I'm Patricia Pierce. Welcome to the Evolutionary Activist Podcast. We are living at an important moment in our history, a time that is calling us into a new way of being, a new consciousness from which a sustainable, just, and peaceful future can arise. In this podcast, we explore ways to help that future take hold within ourselves so that together we can help it come forth in our world. George Lakey is an activist, sociologist, writer, and renowned expert in nonviolent direct action. A Quaker, he has co-founded and led numerous organizations and campaigns for justice and peace. George has trained activists around the world in the principles and practice of nonviolent direct action and has taught at several institutions of higher learning, including the University of Pennsylvania, Temple University, and Swarthmore College. George is also the author of several books, his most recent being Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too, and How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning. So George, I have been looking forward to speaking with you for quite a long time. You've been on my mind, uh, understandably, given the state of uh, the world and our country at the present time. And so I just, first of all, want to thank you for taking the time out of what I'm sure is a busy schedule to talk with us today. So thank you. And thank you for asking me. And I'd like to just start off with uh, asking you, when you look at the times that we find ourselves in, what do you see, both the, the perils and the possibilities? Oh, you want both. <laughs> <laughs> well, or whichever one you want to emphasize. We probably have an understanding of the perils. <laughs> and I have a sense that you see very clearly the possibilities. <laughs> and, you know, I have to admit that uh, the, the look at today, this political moment, it, it has been a, a real journey for me because a a dozen years ago, I was also paying attention to what's going on. And since my training is in sociology, I've been particularly interested in the degree of cohesion of any system. That's what sociologists look at. We look at cohesion and we look at division and we wonder how things are going. And a dozen years ago, things did not look great for the United States because the polarization uh, was also showing up then. But of course, now it's much, much more intense. And the judgment that I made at the time, a dozen years ago, was that polarization is bad news. That is, I thought that if people are screaming at each other and nobody's listening, then that's not good news for making progressive change. And I, uh, I was convinced of that. And on the other hand, I was also doing research at that very time for my book, Viking Economics, and finding that Norway, Sweden, Denmark, were, uh, went through an enormous change process. That is that they were not in great shape 100 years ago. In fact, they were in bad shape, so much bad shape that the Danes were leaving and especially Swedes and Norwegians were leaving their countries, just giving up on their countries. Very, very sad heartbreaking kinds of situations for many families who didn't expect to see their family members ever again when they left those shores. And, and that was a kind of thing going on a century ago. And then those countries turned themselves around. Now they're at the top of the charts for all kinds of measures, you know, of, of well-being, of, 
of, uh, of equality, actually, of democracy, individual freedom. They have more individual freedom than we do. They, they've just got so much shared prosperity. They gave up poverty. So they've turned themselves around. So my big question as I was researching them was, well, when was it they did this and how did they do it? And I found out that they did their big move in the 1920s and 30s, which was exactly the time when they were experiencing their greatest polarization in modern history. Mm -hmm. How can that be? That was a direct contradiction to my belief. I don't know about you, Patricia, but I don't particularly like to have my beliefs contradicted. (laughs) (laughs) You you would mean a lot of people, yeah. This was a terrible situation, right? And especially, I mean, like maybe if I were working on the White House staff, I wouldn't have to pay attention to data. I could just uh, continue with my <laughs> continue with my judgments, right? <laughs> yeah. With my beliefs. But uh-huh. since I uh, my training is social science, I have to pay attention to data. And so, what was I to do with this? And I, uh, so I looked uh, at uh, the U.S. You know. N- near, very near, and asked myself, well, what's going on in polarization in our 20th century? And I found that in the 1930s, we were the most polarized that we had been uh, in the first half of the 20th century, actually. Mm -hmm. We were in terrible shape in the 30s with regard to polarization. Nazis were able to fill Madison Square Garden. In, uh, in New York City you know, in, in 1938. And uh, the Ku Klux Klan was riding high. And on the other hand, it was the glory period of the American Communist Party. Whoa, how mm-hmm. could all this be? Yeah. All that polarization, and at the same time, the 1930s was the greatest period of progress that we made. In the uh, in the first half of the 20th century, okay. So my belief is, you can see, it's getting really torn up. But I have to f- fast forward to the 60s and 70s, which brings us to a time when probably some of your listeners will remember the 60s and 70s, the rebirth of the American commun- uh, Nazi Party. I saw Nazis on the streets at demonstrations where I was mm-hmm. and uh, confronted them. So the Nazis were there, uh, were back, the Ku Klux Klan riding high, bombing black churches in Alabama and Mississippi, killing people. And at the same time, there was really strange stuff going on on the extreme left, the Symbionese Liberation Army, the weather, weather underground, that kind of thing going on. So we had tremendous polarization. Uh, people had the Thanksgiving dinner problem. I can't invite my relatives because they'll fight about Vietnam. Right? Right? Yes. It was a hugely contentious <laughs> issue. And the civil rights was, uh, movement was very contentious. And at the very time of our greatest polarization in the second half of the 20th century, we also made the great progress that we made in that time, the biggest progress that we made in that half century. So my belief is just shattered, right? And I don't know quite how to remold my way of looking at things until I happened to be in a book tour in Scotland for my book, Viking Economics, by that time it was published. I was staying with a metal sculptor in uh, Glasgow, a Quaker metal sculptor who was giving me hospitality. And all around his house, there were these beautiful, beautiful uh, metal sculptures. And I said, man, how do you do this? I'm metal stubborn. Like, how do you make it, mm-hmm. <laughs> make it yeah. be what you've done with it? And he said, oh, I'm happy to show you my secret. So he takes me out back, you know, out in the yard. There's the studio. He opens the door and proudly shows me his blacksmith's 
forge. Mm. And he smiled and he said, yeah, yeah, I had to uh, apprentice to a blacksmith to learn mm. how to work with metal. Because yeah. you're right, metal is very stubborn. It has a mind of its own. It doesn't want to do what you want it to do. Right. So right. you have to melt it. You have to make it malleable. You have to make it so that if you're a blacksmith, you can turn it into horseshoes. Uh, if you're a, a sculptor like me, you can turn it into art. Right. I said, thank you. This guy was named John Creed. I said, thank you, John. This is the metaphor that I needed in order to really re, re, you know, recalibrate my consciousness so that I can look at polarization in a fundamentally different way. It, yes, it includes bad news. Yes, it does include more violence, more screaming at each other more non-listening, all that stuff that we hate about it. And at the same time, it is the malleability of society that happens as a result of polarization. Things get loose, mm -hmm. norms get broken, and not only by the White House. Norms get broken all over the place. Um, break, there's breakdown of the of ancient prejudices, like against trans, transsexual people, for example. Uh, just all kinds of things become in play that previously were crystallized and rigid. Institutions melt, and so it's possible to change them. And that's why it was possible for the Nordics to make huge changes, actually turn their countries around. We didn't get that far with the 30s and the 60s. We weren't able to turn our country around. But we were able to make major changes at the time of polarization. And so I, 82 years old, am excited to be alive right now because, oh my gosh, here we are again. And in my estimation, we're moving into a period of deeper polarization than we experienced in the 30s and the 60s, which means bigger opportunity for change. And yeah. so I'm, I'm on fire. That's why I wrote this new book, How We, How we Win. If, if we've got the biggest opportunity, well, then we'd better use it. <laughs> right. I, and I, and I love that metaphor in your book, How We Win, um, of the heating up the metal and the heat, the increase in the heat. And we know that, you know, things are getting really hot. <laughs> heat is rising. And, and so it's this beautiful uh, moment, uh, possibility, opportunity for us to... Um, to make changes. Yeah, yeah. So, so in when you talk about how Scandinavia turned itself around at the same period of time that Germany was also descending mm -hmm. into fascism, um, and and the polarization. I know you you've talked about this uh, and written about it. How Scandinavia also had plenty of uh, Nazism happening. And oh, yes. They didn't go that route. A and, growing Nazi movement, right. Yeah, and, and yet Germany did. And can you talk to us about, how, about what you see as the differences, why, and, and how nonviolence played a role in that, in that difference between the, the outcomes? Well, in Germany, one outcome of World War I was that, uh, that political groups kept weapons that had been plenty available you know, during the war, had been floating around, and even armed units. And so the political parties entered their period of polarization in the 20s already ready for violence. And it was so tempting for them to pick on each other, to bully each other when you know one was in the majority as compared with the other, and so on. If, if you knew the tavern, for example, where fascists, where Nazis loved to drink, 
and you were on the left, you could go and, uh, and have a rumble, right? And if you brought more people than they had in the tavern, maybe you could beat up a whole bunch of them and so on. Uh, and, and vice versa, if you were a Nazi and you knew where the Social Democrats were or where the, uh, where the communists were, you could go and have yourself a bash. And that kind of thing was going on. That was a huge mistake on the part of, of uh, political, the political left in in Germany, because what it did was it stimulated a breakdown of order. Now, a breakdown of order, that kind of chaos, when there's violence in the streets, there's out of control of police and so on, um, really, really scares the center. Because, yes, polarization is the two poles, but there's also always a big center, right? And that center may be shrinking, but it's still very, very significant politically. Well, that center was getting really scared for its own security because it looked like societal breakdown to them. And so when the economic elite of Germany decided to hand over, and it of course was very scared because it had these tremendous uh, stakes of, uh, of money and property and privilege that were at risk for them. And so in, in, this, uh, you know, in this back and forth thing that was going on, and so they decided to go for Hitler. They handed the state over to Hitler and then uh, figuring, well, Hitler is, if, is for law and order. You know, he'll take care of that security problem. And, and as we know, he did with a vengeance. Now, there's, it's actually much more complicated than that, but I think in terms of movement choices, which is one of the things we can most importantly learn from, we need to learn from that bad movement choice on the part of uh, the German left to use violence and to participate in the back and forth of, of violence in the streets and so on, which some of my friends are interested in doing, frankly. Right. And it's a yeah. big, big mistake to do that. Yeah, and, and I think there's a perception in this country that, that the problem in Germany is that people just acquiesced and there was no, you know, there was no response, there was no resistance or anything. And yet, what was actually happening was there was resistance, but it was of a violent nature, which played into the hands of, of the authoritarian um, exactly. mindset. It yeah. played into the hands. The left was, you could even say, was like manipulated by the right. Right, which is also what happens here. The Proud Boys announce they're going to show up in. Uh, I'm, I'm from Philadelphia. The Proud Boys announce they're going to show up in Center City, you know, with their with their fascist inclined uh, message, and then tons and tons of activists show up to uh, to you know uh, to to counter counter them, right? The counter demonstration. Well, it, it turns out in the most recent case, it was only a couple of dozen of very pathetic, you know, people who could not have gotten a ounce of media attention if it hadn't been for the thousands of activists who showed up in response. And right. I say to my activist friends, you got played. You got manipulated. <laughs> you are so easy. You're an easy mark. I can I can get on mass media any day. All I have to do is dress in a certain way and you know and mouth some ridiculous stuff, and you'll show up. Well, thank you very much. How about some discernment here? So th this whole business about the right learning how to manipulate the left is something we have to be aware of, and we, we can do way, way better than this. <laughs> right. So getting back to the but early... the Nordics, you were talking yeah, the about Nordics. the Nordics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Nordics did not fall for it, because mm -hmm. the Nordics remembered who is actually controlling society. They knew, they saw through the, the, 
they saw through the appearance of democracy that they had because they did have parliaments, you know, and free elections. But they knew that that was only the appearance of democracy because actually it was the economic elite, the people on top, the billionaires and so on. They were actually running society. So the Nordic left, by and large, said, look, we have to keep our eye on the prize. The prize, I mean, it's not these, you know, poor, often out of work, working class, uh, you, you know, youngsters led astray by the fascists, by the Nazis. They are not running society. I mean, they are, you know, they're, they're cast aside by society many times. And the who, who really had the power is who we need to deal with. And so they focused their attention on the economic elite and they shoved them aside. They shoved them out of domination. And that enabled them then to establish democracy and put themselves on the road that they've been traveling ever since. Now, that is the solution, is to what the what our civil rights movement used to have. It was one of my favorite songs. It was, keep your eye on the prize and hold on. Yes. Keep your eye on the prize. Don't get distracted by right. the, you know, the folks who want to manipulate you. No, no, no. Keep your eye on the prize. Go after the economic elite because they have the reins of power. They're the ones who are creating this incredible economic inequality that is the driver of of polarization. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like polarization, and I don't like it, you know, if you don't like it, then the way to deal with it is to, to do what the Norwegians did, which was through the economic elite out as the dominator. And then they could create equality in their society and they generated so much equality their politics got boring because <laughs> the polarization disappeared <laughs> when I, by the time i got there see i married a norwegian in 1959 so 59 that's a lot of years after the 20s and 30s right by that time they had reached such consensus in norwegian society i thought their politics were very boring <laughs> <laughs> Now, some of my you know, friends would say, let's have boring politics for a change. <laughs> exactly. But the only route to getting there, established in history anyway, is to deal with the people who are so intent on economic inequality. And the economic elite loves economic inequality, right? That's why yeah. they were that's why they support Trump, even though Trump offends them in many ways. They nevertheless support him because he delivered that uh, that big tax bill of a year and a half ago that increases the economic inequality uh, in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you say the Scandinavian countries pushed the economic elite out of the way, right. how did they do that? They did it through a nonviolent revolution. That is to say, they made their societies ungovernable through nonviolent disruption. Mm -hmm. And if the governors can't govern, they're toast. <laughs> right? right. So, in, so it, they did that in somewhat different ways in different countries at different times. So I'm generalizing here, please understand. But in my book, Viking Economics, I sort out what the con different countries did. Uh, but basically, it was finding ways of nonviolent disrupting. Like a favorite one in Norway was the industrial workers left to go on strike. And increasingly, you see more and more strikes year by year, 1926, 27, 28, 29. I even put some of the statistics in. The, the number of strikes continue to increase, increase, increase. Well, that goes after the economic elite's pocketbook, right? Because the, the pocketbook of the economic elite depends on worker productivity. And if the workers won't produce, then they don't get their money. If they won't build the ships that Norway is famous for, then the shipbuilders, the ship owners are not going to get their ships and so on. 
So uh, that was one of the major features. In, in Sweden, the, some similar action happened, as well as farmers uh, creating co-ops widely. So they were withdrawing their participation in the privately owned uh, dairy system. Let's use dairies for an example. And instead, creating cooperative dairies. So farmers would own their own dairy. And then they wouldn't need to sell their milk uh, and butter and cheese and so on to the, uh, to the dairies. So it was that kind of work that was really very strategically targeted. It was asking themselves, what does the economic elite need from us and how can we deprive them of that in such a way that makes them fall? And that's mm -hmm. what they did. So, so talk to us about, I think when people think about nonviolent action, they typically think of protests. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about the difference between protests and campaigns and why protests are typically fairly ineffective in the long run. Well, again, if you think about the other side, which is what I always ask people to do, you know, it's just like the left needs to think about what's the right wing trying to provoke us to do. <laughs> so also the, uh, you know, uh, progressive movements need to ask ourselves, okay, so what uh, is the economic elite uh, counting on us to do? And it's basically counting on us to uh, to go along, to go along. So, of course, we don't want to go along. So we do these one-day protests. But what is the economic elite noticing? They're noticing the day, uh, the, the day, and the next day we're going on to do our work, whatever it is. In other words, a protest means at the end of the day you go home. Well, the economic elite and the government that it hires is not going home. <laughs> they're, right. they're continuing the same policies, right? Day after day after day after day after day. So instead of the, these spasmodic uh, protests, whether they're once a year or once a week or whatever, but only just do the thing and go home, we need to do campaigns. And that was the brilliance of the civil rights movement. Because mm -hmm. the civil rights movement in the 60s understood this campaign idea very, very well. They were the artists of campaigns. Mm -hmm. In 1955, Wow, in, in a period when almost nobody was doing anything significant, 50,000 black people in Montgomery, Alabama, stopped riding the bus. Right, right. <laughs> right? And a prolonged, for, a, for a very long time. So and for a, a year. One-day one boycott, right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they could have made their protest statement, and it wouldn't have mattered at all. But, right. to, but the, the, the bus line was crippled for a year. It had very few riders because, you know, a lot of white people were driving cars. Other white people were riding the buses, but that wasn't enough to keep the bus line going. So the bus line was, was really uh, pretty much destroyed by the black people's consistency. And that's what campaigns do. Campaigns do consistency. Sustainability is what people show through campaigns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have, have helped organize and, and have participated in a lot of, of campaigns. And can you just maybe share with us an example of one that you've been involved in and how it unfolded and, yeah, just that. Well, a recent one, uh, we'll bring it way up from the 60s. Now we'll talk about 2010 starting a campaign, um, which I helped to start with a bunch of people, um, to force the bank in the United States that was the number one financer of mountaintop removal coal mining to force them out of the business. Uh, 
Mountaintop removal coal mining is a coal mining technique in which you actually blow up a mountain in phases. You blow up the top, then you blow off the next layer, and the next layer, and the next layer. It costs a fair amount of money to do that, but you save on labor because you don't have to use many miners. A dozen, a dozen workers can blow up a mountain, believe it or not. Right. So, uh, so what the advantage to the coal companies, of course, is that they save on labor. But to get the upfront investment, they need to go to banks. So they go to banks and say, hey, we want to blow up this mountain and give us the money. And banks have been saying, okay. And we happen to have in the Pennsylvania area and mostly East Coast, but also out to the Midwest, a bank that was the seventh largest bank in the country, and it was the number one financier of mountaintop removal coal mining in Appalachia. We thought, whoa. Are we ever lucky? We're sitting right here in the midst of this of this bank. Let's force them out of the business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yes. now this was a group that could fit in my living room, right? I mean, we started <laughs> in a living room. This is not a mass movement by right. any means. So my friends started calling me who would heard about this and said, George, now you have really lost your mind. A, a, living, <laughs> a living room of Quakers are going to stop the seventh largest bank from, doing, from an income stream that it values. You've got to be nuts. So I said, well, we'll see. Because what I, I had the chance to do, and these were mostly newbies to campaign. These were not veterans. These were mostly newbies. But what they had was a deep commitment, the ability to sustain themselves, and the ability to grow. So I figured, let's work together and figure out how to grow, 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 and to show the bank, A, that we were not going to quit, and B, that we were going to keep growing and messing with the things that they don't want us to mess with. That was another part of the pro pro uh, process. We talked with Rainforest Action Network, which is a wonderful environmental organization that was happy to be our big sister, you know, because they had a lot of experience with banks. We didn't know what we were doing. So we kept being on the phone with them. Well, what if, do banks do this? Do banks do that? Do banks do this? And, they, uh, and we figured out also through our own research that this bank, for example, loved to recruit lots of customers from college campuses, figuring, get them now as a youngster, you know, as a, mm -hmm. as a customer, going to yeah. keep them for maybe for their life. That will be really good for us. So they recruited like crazy in orientation, you know, when, when the first years would come to campus and had their booths out. So we went to where their booths were and stood alongside the booth. And when a, a kid would come up and say, hey, I'm interested in being, you know, in, in having a bank, uh, they would say, oh, so glad you've come to us, the greenest bank in America. <laughs> and then we'd say, and now let us tell you what they really will do with your money. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, so that's only one example of many ways that we found out they were vulnerable. You know, they were, they were, it was possible to, to find the places where they had weaknesses and widen those weaknesses such that over a period of years, I, I said sustainability now, we started at such a small level, it took us five years to grow to 13 states. But when we did that, and as far as I could see, five years of growing, 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 we were never going to stop. And it just became crazy from their point of view to keep on putting up with that level, increasing levels of disruption. Nonviolent, of course, Quakers are, you know, Quakers wouldn't hurt a fly. So Quakers are in there being totally nonviolent and totally disruptive. And the bank says, enough, enough, we stop. And they even acknowledged that one reason they stopped was because of our pressure. Mm, yeah. 
Yeah, I I um, interviewed Eileen Flanagan. Oh, maybe I don't know a year or so ago. Who was also part of that campaign? And it's Very much so. it's quite inspiring to know that a small, just a handful of people can make such a tremendous difference. Mm-hmm. And you, you've mentioned, you know, Quaker wouldn't, this group of Quakers wouldn't hurt a fly. So, <laughs> so, so talk to us about how the basic principles of nonviolent action resonate with or express your Quaker beliefs. Well, it is important to me to stand up for what I believe, right? But I don't want to just stand up. I want to actually change things. And that is, uh, has sometimes not been a Quaker practice. Sometimes Quakers have contented themselves with just, you know, being on the right side of history, you know, that kind of thing. But I always want a lot more than that. And so I can point, fortunately, to a number of examples in Quaker history where we, we were with, we, we, where we won. We kept at it until we won. Uh, For example, uh, there was a Quaker invasion of Puritan Massachusetts (laughs) back in the day when (laughs) Puritan Massachusetts was the theocracy. It was the Taliban of their day. And, you know, and and, uh, totally intolerant of other views, that kind of thing. And so Quakers in England said, this is wrong. This is just not God's will that some people should rule over other people's consciences. That's just wrong. We have to stop that. So they did an invasion by land uh, across <laughs> from Rhode Island, and they did an invasion by sea by taking ship voyages to, to Massachusetts. And the poor Puritans, they were besieged by these Quakers. They called. They started calling Quakers ravening wolves, if you can imagine. This is not the oatmeal box that you oh, know. <laughs> <laughs> ravening wolves attacking poor, the poor Puritans, um, and and we won. But it took again. It took years. It took tremendous persistence, and it took deaths. Actually, in that case, uh, mm. the Puritans hung people on uh, Boston Common, hung, hung Quakers in order to try to make their point, at, you know, which was stay away, stay away. And uh, Quakers continued to come. To the colony, and and finally, by by the time they hung the fourth one, which was a woman, which in those days, you know, that was a, one of the sides of sexism. You don't mess with women uh, in the same way that you can take on a male dissenter. You can't do that to a female dissenter, but they did, and that broke the back of the uh, Puritan resistance, and we won. So it's it's cases like that 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 I, as a Quaker, look to for examples of how uh, powerfully we can act uh, and, and still be strictly nonviolent in the approach that we use. Uh, nonviolence, according to Gandhi, being a situation where if there's going to be violence, it's going to be directed at us. That is, we are willing to take the violence on in order to create a mirror that the opponent who's doing violence to us can look at and say, oh my gosh, maybe I better rethink this. This is a problem. Yes. And one of the things that I really value about the Quaker outlook is that there is the divine spark within each of us. And, And Gandhi's stance that the liberation of India wasn't just for the Indian people, but also for the British who... That's right. The, the oppression oppressed oppression oppresses the oppressor so uh, they true. they lose their humanity in the process of, so of oppressing so one can see it as 
uh, a movement that is for the liberation of, of all people. Of all people, of all people. Think of those slaveholders mm -hmm. who were enslaved by slavery, dependent, made dependent on others when they could have been independent people. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. right? They could have been yes. independent people. Right. And instead, Please. they yes. were making themselves dependent. Mm -hmm. on the labor on the labor of others even for the yeah. even for the even for the rearing of their children outrageous mm -hmm. outrageous mm -hmm. think about those moms and dads who had every right from a humanist point of view to experience the full joy of being uh, parents i'm a parent i'm a great grandparent actually yeah, so mm. many children have been in my wow. life and uh I, how awful it would be for me to hand that off to slaves and not experience the ups and downs and, and, and all the growth that's available to us as parents. But that's the kind, that, that's the extremity to which slavery uh, took white people. It's an awful system. Yes. For me, it's really helpful to keep that in mind, to understand that that, that, that keeps me from, from thinking in terms of us, them, and them as the mm -hmm. enemy, but to actually mm -hmm. see that by intervening, by, by doing what I can, what we can to make a difference. Uh, it, it is, it is for the well-being of all, even though, even though, uh, you know, the, the people that are, that are being opposed don't see it that way. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when you have trained people and, and been involved with people who are doing nonviolent direct action, maybe for the first time, First of all, how do you equip people to manage fear, their own fear and the fear of others? I mean, not the fear of others, but the right. fear that others might mm -hmm. have that they encounter. Mm -hmm. yeah. You may have noticed uh, a, a youngster getting scared at some point, and uh, uh, the, really the little ones especially are likely to put their hand out looking for another hand to hold. Mm. <laughs> mm. Deeply human. Mm -hmm. Deeply human. If there's something scary, which might be lightning striking nearby or whatever, you know, it's wonderful to reach out, hoping that your hand will be held. So that's number one. This number one is look for others. And these are scary times, and this is a really important time for us not to uh, continue to act out the American script of individualism. Uh, Bill McKibben told me that when people come up to him after he's spoken about the climate emergency and, uh, and a, a typical question would be, well, uh, well, Bill, what would you say to me? What can I do as an individual to, to uh, deal with this climate crisis? And uh, Bill likes to say, well, first of all, you could stop being an individual. <laughs> yeah. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And, and in isolation, fear escalates. When we're exactly. alone, we do feel more afraid. Exactly. So part of the trainings are really from even from the get go, like a, a, a favorite w workshop tool that I use at the get go is to put people in buddies. Mm. Okay, this is going to be your learning buddy for this workshop. Mm -hmm. So you'll be ha you'll have each other, you know, on breaks and you'll have each other to consult with constantly and raise the questions with and get the support from and maybe some of what we do in the training will be hard on you. Good. You've got your buddy. Turn to your buddy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that's a really, really important part. Another part is to role play 
the situations that are most likely to be scary in the anticipated action. So it's always good to do actions, design actions ahead of time, I think. Spontaneity has its role, but it's also very useful to design as much as you can so that you can spot the moments or the particular actions that you the, the the aspects of the of the scenario that you expect might be most scary for people and then those are the ones that you role play in training ahead of time mm-hmm. so for example this group that took successfully on the uh, bank um, we absolutely every time we did an action we first did a training mm-hmm. So the newbies, for example, who had you know who heard about our group wanted to join it but had didn't have experience yet, they were right right there uh, in the training, you know, along with more experienced people, and we would go through the spots in the action that would be most likely to be scary, and they had a chance to experience that ahead of time. And role playing is a wonderful, wonderful device that the civil rights movement used very, very strongly, even in situations, of course, for them when they were facing the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and and no help was around from local law enforcement. <laughs> they were yeah. on their own with the Ku Klux Klan, right? And they role played, role played, role played. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a trainer for the Mississippi Summer Freedom Summer, nineteen sixty four, and was very much a part of that process of creating the role plays and then debriefing them, in which people get to acknowledge their fear. Because another thing that keeps us scared is when we don't acknowledge the degree of fear that we have. If we right. acknowledge the fear we do have, then it's not as likely to increase because yes. we're acknowledging it as we're experiencing yeah. it, right? Right, right, yes. Um, so, you and you mentioned the civil rights movement, which of course is such a powerful example mm-hmm. of, of what nonviolence can bring about. And in that, there's also this element of when, when, when people of color do actions, they're much more at risk than than white people are, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so to me, it it almost amplifies the the responsibility, you know, for for people who are not as much uh, at as much risk to step up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what got me arrested the first time was that there was a. a, a a mass uh, insurrection going on nearby, near near my city, in a town called Chester, where there were, uh, Chester was probably half black by then, or 40% black anyway, and it was a highly, it was a, it was a city that was a small industrial city that was full of segregation, and so they were doing, you know, one of these uh, classic campaigns, and I was watching it on TV and realized that almost everybody that I saw uh, in the in that struggle in that campaign was black, and I thought this is ridiculous. I, it's not like black people invented racism. I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. something I, as a white person, yeah. you know, it's my ancestors who invented racism. And I'm still infected by it still today. And why am I letting? I mean, anybody looking at this TV would think that it's black people who invented racism, and they, that's why they're taking responsibility to take care of it. But no, 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 we did. We white people should take responsibility. So I got, so I jumped in my car and went out and got arrested with them because I wanted more white people to be experiencing that, uh, that repression. And so I was for the first time beaten by police and so on. And it was a really, but I got by very light and, uh, you know, lightweight kind of repression. And I think, uh, you're right that my white skin also gave me some privilege in that situation. 
I though do have to say that there have been some picket lines when, uh, especially in the Deep South, where uh, often uh, segregationists would regard white people who sided with blacks as race traitors. Mm. That concept was around, mm. you know, mm. you're betraying your white race if you join with blacks in a demonstration. So th in places where that culture existed, then sometimes it would be the whites, say, in the sit-in at the lunch counter or whatever, who would be singled out for extra special wow. beating up. Yeah. Because wow. it was even more infuriating. And that is, even white segregationists could say, well, you can understand why blacks would do this because, you know, they, they want coffee at the lunch mm -hmm. counter or whatever. But what is not understandable is why a white person would do that. And, and yeah. let's really beat that person up. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yes. So when you have worked with people and trained them and uh, been involved with them in nonviolent direct action, what changes do you see in people who participate in, in movements like this? Oh, they get stronger. Mm. Yeah. With exceptions. There have been some in the civil rights movement, I think of especially, who did not take care of themselves and, and weren't supported by the movement to take care of themselves and burned out and, and were left with trauma. Mm. So there have been some sadnesses. There have been some heartbreaks in which people experienced repeated uh, beatings, and, for example, repeated jailings and so on, and, uh, and were suffering in ways that, that, that were not remediated. There were some therapists who made themselves available at the Harvard, an outstanding, nationally known Harvard psychologist went, went down there and did therapy like crazy for a while. I mean, there were pe some people who tried their best, but it wasn't anything like enough to meet the need. And so some people were hurt uh, and became alcoholics afterward or whatever, you know, various mm. trauma. So, so, but those were the, the, those were the exceptions. And by and large, people... Uh, experience themselves with a new sense of power. Mm. For example, I was on a trolley with my son, who was at that time about 11, uh, going downtown. And it was just after the, tr uh, the public uh, transportation system said no smoking. So the signs had gone up, but people weren't used to it yet, right? Sitting behind my son and I was a guy who uh, lit up. So... Ordinarily, because I don't usually pick fights unless they're political or, you know, they're really important to, you know, some interpersonal thing really needs to be dealt with. But that was a casual kind of thing. I would have let it go if I were by myself. But I noticed my son looking at me. Hey, here's my dad. What's my dad going to do about this, right? No, you can't back down if your son is looking at you, right? So I turned around and asked him, please, to put his cigarette, uh, you know, stub his cigarette out. And he looks at me and says, you're kidding, right? This guy did. And mm -hmm. I said, no, I'm not kidding. It, it, there's even a sign up front now. That, that it's a new rule. And so we're not allowed to smoke now. And he said, huh. And he stumps it out. And he's curious. And he sees my son eyeing us. And he sees me. And he says, so I got to say, this is reminding me of something, especially with your boy here. And I said, what's that? He said, when I was the age of your boy, I was in the Birmingham Children's March with Dr. King. Oh That's my what God. I was doing. Wow. Said, Whoa. And my boy's eye, he, my boy knew about this, you know, this struggle and his eyes got big as saucers. And mm. I think mine were close second. And this guy 
totally lit up. He was an African-American guy. And he totally lit up at telling this story. Fortunately, it was a long trolley ride, so we got a lot of the story. And uh, it was obviously, uh, and he even said it. He said it. It was the big experience of my life. The wow. big experience of my life. And he was this mm. totally mm. turned on man. Uh, and and that's an that's a that I will never forget him because it was such an example of somebody who may have had a kind of a lackadaisical life right now, you know, it, it didn't turn out maybe the way he wanted it, but he had had that day of shining glory, or those mm. days of shining glory. Wow. Uh, and and that's yeah. that's in a bigger, more dramatic story way what I think happens in smaller degrees for many many people and many people have told me that that I feel at my most powerful when I'm taking on the tough problems rather mm -hmm. than ducking them and knowing that I'm making a difference yes it's beautiful you you mentioned earlier about following the script or not following the script of being the individual and I do see that we, we follow so many scripts that we are just handed and we sort of follow them unquestioningly. So as you work with nonviolent action, what do you see as the role of creativity and play and breaking out of those scripts? How, what, what, what role does all of that play for you? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. I often advise groups, you know, that are campaigning groups. And I'll say uh, creativity is not, something we all need to expect of ourselves. You know, there are people who are particularly gifted with creativity. So if it doesn't turn out that your group has in its membership a bunch of creative people, it's okay. You all know somebody. You all know, you all know that. You, all, you, know, you remember that friend of yours in college who was a drama queen or whatever. You've got a <laughs> local theater group, whatever. You can find creative people. I know that you can. Get, get their advice. Maybe they won't join the group, but maybe they will be consultants for you. And get them in on the creativity because creativity is a spark that lights the whole group and also comes up with the tactics that are sometimes the most creative and most effective with regard to your opponent and, and likely, you know, more likely to get you to win. And so I'm a very, very big believer that uh, getting out of the script and becoming creative is very important. We also... Uh, routinely in the, this group I keep referring to that took on the bank, um, play games in our meetings. So we'll mm. have, you know, once a month, uh, you know, a general sort of church basement kind of meeting, general membership meeting. Um, but we don't have a drab agenda that lets people go to sleep. No, we sing and we do and we play games. Mm. That's great. Interspersed, <laughs> you know, with the agenda <laughs> items in order beautiful. to keep ourselves kind of loose. Mm -hmm. And from, from that, Springs when in our current campaign there were doors, corporate doors that we decided it would be fun to block, and so we blocked them by doing the electric slide. Do you know that dance? That, <laughs> yeah. group, that group dance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so oh my gosh. we had a couple of hundred people in front of their doors, and people couldn't go. You know, the, the people in the cor corporation couldn't go in or out because we were blocking doors. But we were blocking the doors while we were dancing, doing this line dancing. And there were, you know, there were six-year-olds, and there was me, old me. I didn't know how to do that. Like my feet were all over the place, and I was chuckling at myself. You know, and then there were all the groovy people who were like totally. Not and we partied we partied that was yeah. our that was our blockade we yeah i i hours. really i i do see play play as one of our superpowers <laughs> it's one of our superpowers <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the what we read in the media is not really very uh, playful or creative. So yeah. it, when we engage with media and are consuming news, what, what advice do you give people about that, our exposure to the media? Uh, oh, be very, uh, be your own be uh, mental health uh, advocate. <laughs> mm, yeah. Be careful. Be careful. There are various uh, distractions that will uh, that will not do well for you. One is the kind of political junkie distraction, which of course is really hyped these days by mass media because they want to get as much mileage out of the electoral campaigns as they can, and that's why they start so early. In Denmark, um, the typical national election campaigning period is five to six weeks. <laughs> and no heavenly. and no and no advertisements allowed on TV. <laughs> wow, that's great. Wow. And they get way higher citizen participation in their voting than we do. Mm. Yeah. So we we drag it out, get as many billions of dollars out of it as possible, and it's possible though to get hooked. It can be addictive, so that's one of the things to watch out for. But also there are people who get addicted to bad news. So uh I I raise, I raise the question about, for example, one of the shows that I would love to, to give us leadership. Uh, it's a show called Democracy Now, and mm -hmm. it's on a lot of alternative radio stations and TV. Mm -hmm. And I would love them to give leadership, but so much gloom and doom that we see on that year, week after week after week. And I just kind of wonder why do we want to fill ourselves up with bad news uh, if we want to be at all creative, right. creative people uh, and positive goal setters and goal achievers do not weigh themselves up down with bad news about all, all the reasons why they can't possibly do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Right, it's just demoralizing. Yeah, it's demoralizing. So let's not demoralize ourselves. Let's, yeah, exactly. uh, the enemy is working at that, so we don't even have to do that ourselves. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I know a lot of people listening probably have never participated in any sort of nonviolent action and maybe even have a hard time imagining themselves doing something like that. Um, and there are different roles. I know in your book you mentioned there are different roles mm -hmm. for making change, like direct service and mm -hmm. advocacy. And can you just speak to some of those? Yeah, yeah. It was um, a Quaker sociologist, an activist named Bill Moyer, who was on Dr. King's national staff uh, years ago. He was uh, a very astute observer of, of social movements. And he said that successful social movements, which is what he preferred to write about, he didn't enjoy so much analyzing unsuccessful ones, but he said successful social movements um, tend to get four roles played in the course of their work. One role is the role of the helper. That is the person who uh, likes to do direct service. So for example, the climate concern, if you're concerned about the environment, uh, these are the people who will uh, you know, go around getting people to put solar on their rooftops, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Or go around um, uh, cl doing cleanups, organizing neighborhood cleanups uh, on the stream that runs by. 
that kind of thing. So tree, that's the tree health. planting, well, that sort of thing. They love being direct, right? Mm-hmm. Getting something specific done. At the end of the day, they can say, look at these specific things that I did, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the helper. And that shows up in every, every social movement. Think in the civil rights movement, all those people cooking chicken dinners in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because an army, an army trumps on its on on its stomach, right? <laughs> Whether it's a non-violent <laughs> army or a right. violent army, you've got to have the kitchen going. Right. And so you've got all those people in the kitchen. Thank you, thank you. So that those are the helpers. And then another role, very important, is the advocate role. The advocate role uh, is occupied by people who especially like to go to people in authority and speak truth to them. So they like to go to city council meetings or go to, to you know, do lobbying with the mayor or lobbying with city, uh, with national Congress people, whatever. Um, those are the folks. Uh, lawyers are very often advocates because they're in court. We're trying to get advocate for a point of view, you know, with a judge. So advocates advocates like being in that vertical relationship with somebody with greater authority or greater power and try to convince them that change is possible. Um, that can be, uh, the advocates can be very helpful to in uh, even in direct action when there are people getting arrested because it's very useful to have a lawyer on your side when you're, you know, when you're being tried for some, mm-hmm. some nonviolent act. So there's that. So the first of all, I said helper, and then I said advocate. Then the third one is organizers. Organizers love to get lots of people out. And for them, the, the, a wonderful day is when they got more people this time than last time. So, yeah. <laughs> so they can be very helpful both to the helpers and to the um, advocates in getting a mass lobby instead of just a couple of people lobbying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they love to, they also are builders of coalitions, get mm-hmm. different groups that are on different issues to see their common, uh, common interests and then get them together so that they feel form coalitions. Organizers are amazing. And then the finally, connectors also, I mean, you, you could consider those folks also the connectors, right? Absolutely. They're yeah. connecting, mm-hmm. they know how to put that, the tissue together to make mm-hmm. a body. And then finally, there's the rebel. And the rebel is classically, you know, the Dr. King, the Gandhi, uh, the Alice Paul, who uh, this is 100 years since we got women's suffrage in this country. She was the one who really pulled it over the top, that suffrage issue. She was a rebel, rebel, rebel. New book out, just I, I read by I read about her, in which every opportunity she got to confront the president and polarize the situation a little bit more, she did it. And she drove Woodrow Wilson just about crazy <laughs> and, and forced him to go from, oh, yes, suffrage. That'll be something we can deal with after the First World War is done to, and as part of the war effort, we've got to free our women and enable them, you know, like that. It's an amazing, amazing story of Alice Paul. I hope, I hope your listeners will look into her. But anyway, she's an, a, another classic example of, of the rebel. Uh, and all four of those roles are likely to get farthest and the camp and the movement will get farthest when those roles are in sync or at least not wasting valuable time criticizing each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Cause I imagine people can imagine it being in one of those roles, even if they're not a rebel at heart, but they can certainly make a contribution. So as we finish up here, George, what, just what one thing might you want people to really come away with from this conversation about being in these times right now? 
to really take to heart in this moment? Stopping an individual. <laughs> find people even if it's in it's a small group as a living room group and uh, find find uh, and talk with them ahead of time in order to help yourself discern whether they want to play the role that you want to play maybe you're a helper maybe you want to get help other helpers in the living room or maybe you are an organizer you know so study those roles and consider what what most flows to your boat because we can stress ourselves and actually out you know uh, burn ourselves out if we're consistently doing something that's not really us um, yeah. there are of course plenty of people can play two or more of those roles so i don't want to mm -hmm. discourage that but on the other hand just to say it's a little easier, especially if you don't have a lot of experience, to operate from the place that, that you're most comfortable. And then get other people together and then figure out how can we, what might be missing in our area uh, that isn't being carried forth, you know, well. So mm -hmm. maybe, the, maybe, no, maybe people aren't, are not working on uh, solar as a tremendous opportunity for employment for low, uh, people without jobs. So maybe, your helper group could find out who are the people who don't have jobs but could learn uh, the, some of the, the relatively low-skilled because maybe they're without skills, job skills, maybe uh, low-skilled work that could fit into a solar operation and you can build a whole solar offensive out of that kind of work. Um, yeah, so, so getting together with other people and figuring out what you can do in your area that's not being done as well or maybe not being done at all, and uh, that suits you and going forth proudly. Mm, great. Well, George, I really want to just, again, express my appreciation to you for, for not only taking the time to do this, but for all of the work that you've done and all the lives that you've inspired across the world and the difference that you've made. So I just... Um, I'm very appreciative of you. And on this podcast page, I will include some links to some of your work so that people can find out more about you and be inspired by your writing and um, your contribution. So again, thank you very, very much for being with us today. You're so welcome. And thanks for your great questions. And your, I, I love your humor, your sense of humor too. <laughs> well, it goes both ways. <laughs> All right, George, thank you so much. Take good care. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye.